Yeah. So, um, okay. So what I want to do right now is I want to set up for our listeners an intro to our next, to this podcast episode, to give you a little bit of framework for understanding it. We've invited a gentleman named David Artman, who wrote a book called Grace Saves All. And I believe this is one of the most important theological conversations any human being can ever have. Because what did David do? That was the brilliance of this entire conversation for me, is he took what are most people stuck on? They're stuck on the poles of Arminians versus capitalism or uh, Calvinism. Calvinists. And he found a, a third way. Third way that took both of the best and weaved it together. Yep. It's freaking brilliant. Grace and goes to all and grace alone time. saves. Yeah. Grace alone saves and grace goes to all. Right. And he also, what I thought was brilliant was he took the nature of justice and love and said, it's not one or the other, it's both. And I think David has distilled down the concept of this idea that grace is powerful enough to save and restore everybody and everything. And uh, so this was very personal to me because this is a conversation that I've been on for a very long time. Rich and I have been having conversations for probably at least 10 years around universalism, but it's a very touchy subject. And I want to give you a preface to say we spent a lot of time uh, really talking about let's not let it go too esoteric. And I think we did a very good job of it. Because I wanted it to be very accessible for our listeners. We tried to target a very simple way of talking about it. And that's who David is. David's mm-hmm. a very smart guy, but he's very personal and very uh, accessible in the way he talks about this idea. Because I believe this idea can change the face of Christianity if we really listen to it. That's why I brought it up. But the reality is, is Rich, you went out and found him. Yeah. How'd, How'd that happen? Well, um, you know, I think we were trying to find um, a, a person to talk about universalism. And I think we threw around a couple names like Thomas Talbot or Brad Jerzak. And I think we'd kind and of- And I reached to- out to Brad, but he wasn't available yet. Okay. Well, I was thinking about this book that we both read last year, Grace Saves All. And I was saying to myself, this is, I think, a great angle. Why don't we actually go after the author himself, David Artman? And lo and behold, he was absolutely excited to be on the podcast. And here we are, right? And so what was your impression of this experience? Because it was it was truly unique for me. How did it hit for you? Well, I felt energized. I felt a little more convicted of, of the case uh, of universalism. And when you start to actually realize and you dig a little deeper, um, and this is what we need to do with all of our lives, right? The reason why we have left of center, right of center, and open dialogue is to hear new ideas or ideas that have might have been slighted over the years, right? And so in terms of the kinds of things that he opens up, you realize that some of the most important early church fathers actually embraced universalism. And these were really, really smart people named Origen and Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa. These people were considered pillars of the church at the time. Then you actually go into scripture and you see a lot of evidence, Jonathan, that speaks to God saving all and God wanting to save all. And and, and about even in the book of Ezekiel, God talks about rescuing the the, the Jewish people, the the Israelites, not because of their name, but because of his name, the holiness of his name. He said, I will rescue them. That is a sovereign kind of concept. 
Then he moves into the idea of hell and how hell had been co-opted, you know, by by the power of the church, you know, past maybe four or five hundreds as they became more powerful. It became more important to have something to, to fight for and die for and even pay for, as we saw during the Reformation, right? We saw that Tetzel was actually pulling money in from parishioners to say, hey, you can save your grandfather in purgatory, right? Or you could save them from the fires of hell if you only give us some money. So you start to realize some of the really- That was the beginning of indulgences. Absolutely. Yeah, Pope Leo created indulgences. They existed, but he used them so he could pay for his golden parties. Did you know that? Also, St. Peter's Basilica. Yeah, yeah, that's all true. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, hell is a really good reason to make money. Absolutely. It it works. So Yeah. Um, and I know for our listeners, I want to give you a preface that I know this is going to probably touch a few buttons for a lot of people, especially if you grew up under an evangelical framework. We talk a lot about that. And I want to give you permission to disagree, to comment, to review, and give us your feedback, because these are the kind of conversations that we want to have that do push buttons to create a healthy dialogue. Our goal here is not to pitch one way. I think David's approach is much more holistic. It's much more, it's ridiculously grounded in scripture. So if you're worried about that, the man is a scholar. And he even admits most of his scholarship came from David Bentley Hart, who is a machine when it comes Mm -hmm. to a scholar. So we are in the forefront of a new conversation. And I think we want to make that conversation happen. Awesome. Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together, we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. In today's episode, we are going to be meeting with David Artman, author of Grace Saves All. And this is going to be one of my favorite episodes ever. David, welcome. Hello, hello. It is a pleasure to meet you. Oh, good. Absolutely. You are here (laughs) as, uh, I just, I'm going to... Rich and I are um, deeply appreciative of your work and feel like it needs a massive elevation. Uh, he's going to be a couple minutes late. Okay. And uh, but we have sort of a pre-conversation that we always record and talk about. I and just I would I want to begin. Um, I I thought about whether or not putting this in the podcast, and we'll decide later. But um, okay. I just want you to know your book represented a watershed moment for me. Because you were able to put into a very succinct form that everyone is saved. And it was so elegant. I remember thinking to myself when I read it, I was like, man, this is it. So I thank you. That, that's, you helped me in a wonderful way to grow because I always knew it was true, mm-hmm. but I never could put it together theologically like you did. And it was so wonderfully perfect. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. I, uh, it was sort of a, um, well, it was a labor of love, but it was also, um, you know, I was thinking you guys are doing the matrix, you know, mm-hmm. kind of theme. Mm-hmm. And I remember once I got onto the brink of this and I thought, you know what I can see, I thought I can, I'm getting to the point where I can see a better argument for this than where I yes. was before. But yes. if I take this step, it's going to be, I'm going to be putting myself out there because <laughs> if you say to people, 
you know, God is good. God is loving. God's going to save everybody that's savable. God is not right. arbitrary. God would never lose somebody over a misunderstanding. People, most people would say, except, you know, like pretty, you know, like you're fundamentalist, but most people would say that sounds like a nice vision of God, you know, mm-hmm. we kind it's of all possible not... for them. <laughs> it's like people can't conceive of a God that could forgive everybody. Right. And, and a, a sort of, you know, like when we go to the movies, the big payoff at the end of lots of movies is that really, really, really super bad guy. And we all yeah. like that bad guy to get it. Right. And so what, what I found out is pretty immediately, like most people don't like the idea of hell. If you talk mm-hmm. to them about it, what do you think about hell? Oh, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's good. I don't think it's got fair for, you know, but then, then you say, what do you think about God saving everyone. It's like, well, what about Hitler? What about, you know, yes. then immediately the scapegoating thing right. jumps up and it, it wouldn't be like, I'm not that bad, but it, it wouldn't be fair if, you know, to start making a list, if these people, you know, if these people got in and then on like on, on, um, on another note, people who have been like horribly abused by somebody, right. You know, that, how could I ever be eternally in a place where that person is there? Yes. You know, how, how would that ever even work out? So I could kind of understand then it was, you know, there were different things that I had to work through there. Um, um, but I finally I appreciate did. how you constructed. That's why I mean, it was elegant. You looked at those possibilities because you can't look at the idea of restoring everybody without the fringes, without Hitler. And, uh, you know, how do you deal with someone who's raped 27 times by the same man being in the same room? You've kind of worked through that tension. Yeah. Yeah, I found a way to, my my wife is a a PhD and I was talking with her about the book. And I remember at first, the idea was going to be um, kind of the idea that it was going to be a plea to allow Christian universalism a place at the table. So the idea was kind of like the acceptability of Christian universalism. Um, but then the more I, the more I thought about it and I talked with her about it, she said that that your, your book is going to be stronger, the stronger argument that you make. So go ahead. Don't be afraid to make your strongest argument. And it was really like David Bentley Hart and Thomas Talbot Mm -hmm. who helped me to see that I finally had an issue with the goodness of God. If God makes a creation in which God in foreknowledge knows that the people that are going to come into it are going to come to some horrible end. Well, then how can God be light in whom there is no darkness at all. So, mm-hmm. so somehow that rebounds. It, so the question of what about the worst people who've ever lived uh, and what they have done? Ultimately, if you have a, if you have kind of a, uh, a the traditional view of God who's all knowing, all powerful, all good, how does that fail to ultimately mm-hmm. rebound back to God? And once I got that, that then then it's that it finally really what this all comes down to is what is the character of God? And, yeah. and that yes. was working through all of that. And I guess if I had some ability, it is 
that I was used to, I kind of know how the average person thinks. So um, I think that's why I wanted to start it with the idea the first word in all of this is grace, which is mm-hmm. a which is a nice word for people. You know, it's like we all want to be on the side of grace. We all like that. And I just found myself wanting to be in a position in which I wasn't forced to make a subtraction from grace in one way or another. That idea. Yeah. I love that idea. It's a very succinct way of looking at it. Like, wow. I, you know what? I feel, I feel bad for Rich because I know he's going to want to hear all of these. Oh, we'll do. Because this is what we talked about is our goal for today is not to dive into the esoteric. Okay. Because I believe this idea is bigger than just a theological discussion. This is a human discussion. And our goal for this podcast episode is to make your work at a fourth grade level accessible. How can people grapple with this idea as a human being on their own terms? But we we want to make sure that we don't get too esoteric that they can't understand it because it would be both rich and i have very long theological backgrounds we're both very strong theological thinkers but this idea is too important to get in that vein Uh, so we that's what we really wanted to talk about is the human side of this idea as well we we do want to touch i have a million questions for the theology but Mm -hmm. It's the human side, because I know from personal experience, so I wrote a book 12 years ago and basically ended up being my theology. And I didn't realize that until the day I published it. Mm -hmm. And I realized the journey of writing the book was, is more important than the conclusion. It was the process of learning courage to be integrous with myself. And did you feel that way? Did you go through, did you wrestle with any of that kind of fear of what did it mean to like take a new stand that was different than what you were educated in? Well, the, the nice thing about the, the church that I joined years ago was um, the idea was we believed in God. We followed Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But beyond that, we would each need to construct our own best theological understandings and that this would be a lifelong journey. And that and what my, community was that? Was that, I believe it's disciples of Christ. Yeah. Christian church disciples of Christ. And I love that framework because it gave you the freedom to explore possibilities. Right. And that's what I was doing as a minister. I would tell people, you know, that my job is to encourage you to go on your best journey of exploration and discovery not that not to sort of try to make you into a clone of me. Yes. Um, so I can be a conversation partner, but I can't be like a cult leader or um, I can't be put up on some kind of pedestal. Right. Because um, it's, it's the message. It's not you. It's the message. Right. So in other words, we're all sort of seeking after something. Right. Which which is. Uh, some in some way beyond our grasp and that that should elicit some humility in us and it should hopefully make us uh not want to be judgmental of others we should it should leave some room for things um so i guess i never felt like i was doing anything wrong when i was on this journey 
But I got to when I got to the conclusion of Christian universalism, I felt like it was a complex enough journey and such an unexpected conclusion that I wanted to write something that I could give to somebody to help them to see how a minister like myself might have come to this might have come to this conclusion. Because if I just tried to, if there was somebody that was skeptical of it or didn't understand it, I was afraid that if I got into a conversation with them, it would quickly turn into kind of a debate. You know, like I would get out a few sentences and they would say, well, what about? And uh, so I wanted I wanted to be able to put out my whole argument or put out my whole case and kind of anticipate what I thought the major questions would be so that a person could look at it and it wouldn't, it didn't, it it couldn't be too long, you know, so I needed a short, I needed something that was succinct that could get the main points out there pretty quickly and help somebody to move through that to see if they thought that I had a case and then beyond that to, to recommend some further reading. But here's the thing. Your book is not, uh, it's not brief. It's dense. You have, I kept, I was telling Rich, for each point you make, you dive like three or four different verses in. And so you're taking a traditional theological approach, which is sort of an, what is the logical build of the idea mm-hmm. so that it can't, you know, each thread can't be torn down. You did that beautifully. That's it, but it's brief enough that you can understand the ideas. You don't have a lot of fat. You cut to the chase very quickly. Right. It needed to be very succinct um, because I just knew I don't have a lot of time with people. So I wanted to make sure that whatever mm-hmm. time that I had with them, I was moving quickly. As a matter of fact, I wrote the book to be read. I kind of read it out loud as I was reading it because a lot of stuff that's written uh, can kind of get can kind of get bogged down. So I needed it to keep moving. I needed each sentence to anticipate the next sentence. So I always so anticipate- I'll ask you one question, and then I want to introduce Rich, who I've yeah. connected with you. Why didn't you read your own Audible book? Well, I had uh, first of all, I didn't understand how it worked. Oh, okay. And. Because I, uh, I read your book through Audible, and I love your voice. I love your conviction because it's mm-hmm. simple. It's you don't you don't have a lot of fat. You don't have a lot of ego and glamour. You're just very. I would have loved to have heard your voice. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. Okay, so uh, one of the the persons that I met on this journey was a guy named George Saris, and George is a professional uh, audiobook narrator. Yeah. And at that time, I had not done, I did not know how to do any recording. I hadn't, I didn't, I, it was pre-podcast. So I had no idea how to do, how to even do any of this. And um, I asked George if he'd be willing to record the audio book. And I said, I'm building a budget for this. How much would I need to budget in for your doing this? And he said, well, I'll do this for free. Said, you know, I I narrate a lot of books. I narrate a lot of books I don't agree with. But I love to narrate a book that I really do agree with. So it was a, kind of a practical thing, just That's to awesome. have a, yeah. But then when I started, uh, I didn't. When I started doing podcasting, I had not spent a lot of time listening to my own voice, and it was a little bit bracing. You know, it's a little bracing listening to it your is. own voice. 
Yes. And so it took me a while before I got used to that. And also, I think I grew up in Texas. So I've got this sort of Texas accent that I can't get rid of. My and, my dad was a cowboy. So I appreciate that, though. Well, you know, so it doesn't, I don't want right. to say I, the Texas accent doesn't sound smart, but, you know, sometimes my, I have to be careful not to get too far down into that old Texas accent that I've got down in here, you know, where I grew up. I need to, so I have to be, <laughs> I have to, you know, work on being pretty neutral. But what helped, what helped me find my voice for the podcast was I took a class on podcasting and they said, when you podcast, you have to podcast, don't podcast to the whole world, podcast to one person and then let mm. the whole world listen in. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought about it and the person that I wanted to podcast to, I decided it was a, a woman, early thirties has gone through a divorce, grew up and went through the worst of evangelical fundamentalism. Her husband was abusive and that was all a part of the whole thing that he felt like he could be that way because of his, the, the whole religious thing. So right. finally she gets out of all of that. She's got a few kids. She doesn't know if she even wants to believe in God anymore or have anything to do with Christianity, but she doesn't know what to do about the kids. And she started hearing some things about deconstruction and different ways of being Christian. And she heard about this thing called Christian universalism. And so she just wanted to find out some information about it. So I mm -hmm. imagine that she's um, got the kids to sleep. She put her earphones in, maybe the lights are off or whatever. She's just kind of relaxed. And she just needs somebody to explain this to her. Mm. And so that's kind of how I found my voice. And that's why the podcast is so gentle. I've, I've, so I'm just, I love I'm, your gentleness. Your gentleness yeah. really underneath it is your conviction, which your audible book is missing. It's his voice is great. I, mm -hmm. I read all my books in audio. Right. But you have a conviction that can only come from the first person. And I, in listening to your podcast, that's how I felt when Rich and I were talking. It was yeah. like, I love this guy's voice. And so I want to encourage you going forward to let that out, because I think you've learned good things from your yeah. podcast. Yeah, well, I enjoyed. And then another thing that the podcast uh, class that I took said was, if you're going to, if you're going to do a podcast and you consider yourself to be a content expert, then put your own, your own information out there in the first you know, however many podcasts and then go to the interviews. And so then that was like, oh, okay, right. well. David, you are of supreme in that category. <laughs> you, you have you have crafted a, a tip of the point for right. an entire group of people who have been waiting for this to be done. That's what I really feel like. Well, thank you. Man, my, so, let me do this. More. Sorry, I apologize, Rich. So yeah. David, this is Rich, my podcast partner we yeah. have been friends for 15 years talking about this as one of our largest theological discussions we've had is this idea of universal i've been a universalist for a long time but i have been looking for uh and and rich is my counterpoint he's sort of trailing but he asked we have these wonderful dialogues so rich why don't you say hello okay hello rich <laughs> Hello, David. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and, and yes. taking pictures in the actual discussion we're having today. I was just thinking about 
your 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 winsomeness versus let's say David Bentley Hart, who is brilliant and but can be so acerbic, right? And in fact, right. one of the podcasts he's trying to tell you to look up the word desultory. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. I misused the word in front of David Bentley Hart. Well, you, you can't do that, unfortunately, you know, and I don't even know if it'd ever be one. And I don't even know if we'd actually want him on our podcast, although he's brilliant. And, and oh, and, I would and, love to have him. He yeah. takes it on the counteroffensive, right? He takes what is mostly a defensive position, which has right. been for the last, you know, 1400 years, ever since the early church fathers have you know embraced the, the topic. And it's been defensive. Now he's like, no, you're a, you're a, <laughs> You're an infernalist. Yeah. And, and and the idea that you would think this way, I, we're talking about the He knows your process. argument better than you do. Yeah. Like his yeah. brain is a machine. Yeah. Like it's a whole nother level of, in, of intelligence. It's well, what's, fun, what's fun for me is to translate David Bentley Hart so that a, a, an average person might be able to get the idea about what, he's, and David, that's your gift. what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's your gift. Yeah. And, and I and think to your sort capacity of... to distill it succinctly, that's what I talked about, it being so elegantly simple. So let's get started. Uh, this okay. is uh, Living in the Matrix uh, with Rich. Hey, Rich. Hey, everybody. Looking forward to this episode. One of the top ones I'm looking forward to. Absolutely. We So today we have with us David Artman. And David wrote a book called Grace Saves All, which I uh, make the argument is the tip of the spear for Christian universalism. And Rich and I have been in this conversation for a very long time. Um, and I think David's work is the most accessible theological treatise I've ever read that is simple at a fourth grade level. Anybody can understand it. And uh, so, David, welcome. Uh, we're, it's wonderful to have you. Well, I am. I'm glad to be here. And uh... I enjoy getting to talk about theology and um, about this vision of God. And let me just say, uh, to start out with that, you know, I'm not the hero in this story, that everything that I came to was really suggested to me by somebody else. It was a door that was opened to me and somebody encouraged me to walk through it. And so I'm as surprised as anybody to be uh, where I am right now. So it, it's fun having the conversation. I wrote the book and I started the podcast. One reason was just for my own benefit to be able to just put this out there, but also to engage in conversation, to find other people that were either uh, agreeing with me or close to this conversation so that so that I could have these kinds of conversations. So I'm really pleased you guys found the book and have invited me to come and talk about it. So for our listeners, can you give so we talked about sort of the fourth grade approach? How would you define your theological treaties or idea at a very simple level? And I think you did it really well in the book. So go ahead. Well, uh, let me just go the title. Let me just use the title of the book Grace yeah. Saves All. Each of I worked on that title to get it as succinct as possible. Grace is, I think, an idea that all of us sort of have an idea about what it is. I mean, if you, if you ask people, what is grace? They'll say, well, well, you know, it's what God, it's what God gives us. It's, it's something that we get that we don't, you know, deserve or, or have to earn. But then if you start going further into the discussion, then people aren't quite so sure what grace actually includes. So does grace actually save you? 
or is grace that thing which gets you like to use a football analogy it it takes the ball down to what the 15 yard line but then you have to make the you have to get it into the end zone so does grace assure that you will get into the end zone or does grace give you the the opportunity and then uh the word all well does does grace go to all or just does it go to some and that has been a discussion within the within christianity so um i guess the my my idea of the book is that grace is not that which tries to save but actually is able to save it is saving yeah and that it, it's not grace saves some it's that grace saves all and so that's what the book is about it's that grace saves all and i think what this does is it brings into view a god who is infinitely love and loving and full of wisdom and in creation but wanted to bring together an eternal family and that all of us are God's children, and that in Christ, God has provided ultimately for the restoration of all of his children and all of creation. So that's what my book is about. Okay. So beautifully put, I was listening to that going, okay, that's really, you You brought it down to really simple human terms. Okay. So, but one of the things we talked about before you got on, Rich, was sort of the journey to get there. What are the implications from your perspective in your journey of making that kind of statement? Grace saves all, not some, but all. What does that mean to you? I think that without getting too much into my story, when I was in my early 20s, my parents went through a divorce. I had rejected Christian fundamentalism as being mean but at the time i thought that was the only christianity that there that there was and i remember i was feeling down i found out that the for me the opposite of faith wasn't just doubt it was despair and that i was starting to feel really depressed and like maybe life didn't have any meaning and i had this thought which was but maybe if there's a good god at the center of everything life might be worth living maybe if we're somehow everything is going to a good place and somehow there's a really good God behind all of it. It might be, life might be worth living. And I, I ran into the work of C.S. Lewis and mm-hmm. that provided a place for me to get started. A God who saved everybody who was savable, but there might be some who locked themselves away forever somehow. And that worked for me. Until that was, was the bus story. What, um, yeah, the great divorce. Yeah, the great divorce. The really? idea that, yeah, the, yes. or sort of the idea that C.S. Lewis is famous for, that the idea that all of the doors in hell are locked from the inside, and that mm-hmm. potentially some of them could stay locked that way forever. Mm-hmm. And for me, that resonated with the idea of a God who was good, who saved everybody that was savable. And that worked for me until I was uh, around 50 years old. And uh, it was mm-hmm. at that time... Uh, I was actually challenged by a friend of mine to look more deeply into Christian universalism. And I, I looked into the work of um Barkley. We had David Bentley Hart. Okay. Um, yeah. um uh, Thomas Talbot's book, The Inescapable Love of God, Robin Perry's uh, Evangelical Universalism, books like that. But what I began to realize was that 
this God of pure love that I was looking for, oh, George MacDonald, this of God of pure love that I was looking for could not be content to ever let any of his children finally languish forever or finally die behind that door, behind that closed door. And once I sort of had that breakthrough moment, what I, what I came to see was that as a Christian, I could believe in a God who is absolutely trustworthy and who loved each one of his children um, in such a way that this God would never allow them to pass into non-existence or to some type of eternal separation over a misunderstanding about who God is and about who they are. So it was a God I felt like was a God of perfect love who I could feel securely attached to and who I felt like anybody could feel like, no, this God really loves me. This God has me and will not let me go, even if I fall into some type of insanity. Um, this God would not let, ever let my insanity have the final word um, in my existence. And once all that started working together, I think that was the, you know, just the God of perfect love who saves all of his children was the, was the basic idea that I came to. And here's one of the rubs that Rich and I talk about quite often is there's sort of the masculine responsibility of tough love versus the compassionate feminine side. Um, and it's easy in theology to really focus on this side. Christian universalism pushes over into the compassion side pretty dramatically. How do you, how did you reconcile that? Well, the, the typically, you know, if I was to say, well, God is love, mm -hmm. what would be the, what would be the, the pushback? Well, God is also just. Well, what if that's the traditional argument? Yeah, that's yeah. the pushback. But for me, what's the difference between the two? One is ontological, one is an adjective. God is love is ontology. God is just. He's not God is justice. God is just. That's an adjective. To me, the love comes through stronger than the adjective. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. That I mean. But and I got the idea is, is what if I could sort of give full strength to both of these and and mm -hmm. really it was um, yes that's a better approach yes right okay so it was really origin uh, origin of Alexandria and yes. and on smart guy in his book mm -hmm. on on first principles he was very adamant that God would never deny somebody's free will that. And in other words, that God would not would not rush somebody into the into the process of transformation. That it would have to be some kind of legitimate, real process that they that they were having. And it, it sort of reminded me of the the parable of the prodigal son. The father there doesn't rush the son into his realization. He actually yes. funds his journey and allows him to go however long he needs to until he starts to come to his senses. So. It would be sort of like an absolute justice, but one that uh, that took its time. Another story that I like is um, the story of Scrooge and how Scrooge is shown progressively the things that he needs to see. They're hard and difficult for him to see, but he's shown what he needs to see, and he, and he has the experiences that finally allow him to come to himself and to come to his senses. So it's, it's the idea that God doesn't just uh, wave a magic wand and transfer, transform somebody, but God would take them through whatever necessary 
whatever necessary weeping and gnashing of teeth that 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 had to happen in order for the person to truly see to see themselves and to repent of whatever needed to be repented of. I, George MacDonald uh, has this quote that I like. He said that the um, the devil must come out every hair and feather. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to get anything, anybody more compassionate than George MacDonald. But if you read his work, uh, the justice of God comes through just as clearly as does the mercy of God. But in the end, there's a final restoration. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll, let's let's dive off that cliff for a second. Okay, how do you live in the same room with Hitler? Well, when I think about Hitler, um, the person he's that, the antithesis of one pole, right? Sorry. Yeah. Well, there's some things about him. First of all, I think I might be able to realize that had I been raised in his situation and at his life, I thought I I may have killed more people. Exactly. Exactly. Did. And in other words, in order to understand Hitler, we have to put ourselves in his shoes and realize his story is different than ours. Yeah. Also, I mean, I think Hitler, to me, when Christians bring up Hitler as the worst case scenario, mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit ironic because where mm-hmm. did Hitler learn his anti-Semitism? Well, one of the last books, I mean, I think the last book that Martin Luther wrote was The Lies of the Jews, an cred- incredibly anti-Semitic book. So he's kind of the father of, you know, German religion. He writes this incredibly anti-Semitic book at the last of his life. If you look at medieval Europe, you know, it was awash in horrible anti-Semitic tropes and stories about the Jews eating their, drinking the blood of their children and eating their children, you know, just horrible. It's hard for us to really understand that that world really existed, but the medieval Christian world um, created a lot of the uh, the animus that went into what Hitler believed and used in order to do what he did um, towards the Jews and not just Jews, but uh, a lot of other groups, gypsies, um, gay folks, you know. Um, so I guess what I would say is that, that so that Hitler um, had a lot of uh, negativity, a lot of um, um, psychological bad things probably that built and built yeah. and built on his life. It got headed in a tremendously horrible direction and caused lots of issues. But when when I look at then the larger picture, if I say that God is all-knowing and all-powerful, the idea that that there would be a situation and a person like Hitler must have been foreknown by God. So God is not um, out of the picture here. And so in order for this to all work out, there would have to be some type of ultimate reconciliation in which Hitler and his victims mm-hmm. could finally be together. And mm-hmm. I would imagine that the road to that final point might take um, ages and ages, and it might take moments of personal reconciliation between Hitler and every single person that he affected adversely, mm-hmm. which could, you know, it's millions of people. But if we're thinking about eternity uh, and we're thinking about a journey of restoration and reconciliation, finally, some way, I think we all have to be reconciled. We all have to admit maybe those. Uh, I was at a group the other day and we were having a discussion and the, the discussion question is, was, are you the villain in anybody's story? And if we think back about that, 
probably through the course of our life, we are the villain in somebody's story. We've all had moments where we did not express love, and maybe we've forgotten those, but we need to be reminded of them if we need to be. Every, like George McDonald said, the devil must come out every hair and feather. We need to have all of that come to the surface. Finally, we'll all, if, if everybody's to be reconciled together, we will all have to know and understand that everybody realizes what they've done. They've experienced the experience true remorse and repentance over it. They are truly sorry. We've said and spoken everything that needs to be spoken to each other. And that sounds like an enormous thing to imagine that could happen. But I think that's part of, uh, to me, is just believing that God can pull off something that would even, I think of like the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that they uh, oh, process. That they have the thing. Yeah. yeah. Something that, like that. that on, the TRC was one of the most incredible events, I think, in human history. Yeah. So I got my master's in organizational leadership and we studied the TRC. I was the blown Truth and Reconciliation Committee Commission. Yeah, yeah. The, the Truth and Reconciliation. It was it was so brilliant in its simplicity. Yeah. To create a space of reconciliation by confession and observance with the victim. And it was like in the public sphere. Like mm -hmm. it was incredible. Because it and it worked historically. Mm -hmm. That's so I could go on a mile, on a million years about that. No, one. but you know that that does kind of provide sort of a, a a framework in which we we could sort of imagine a possible path to get there. No, mm -hmm. okay. So you talked about it, and Rich, you and I talked about this last night. Is there's a part in your book of a gentleman, and I don't remember the name of the gentleman who's recounting his experience with um with his own seeing his own victimization of other people. That the hardest part about accepting God's love was that God actually could forgive him. Well, he said that, okay, so this is a Heath Bradley is United Methodist minister. He wrote a book called flames okay. of love. And in that book, he tells the story, you know, he had come to this idea of universal reconciliation, but then he received a request to visit with a man who had been in prison. He was out of prison, but he was a, he'd been a child offender and a, you know, he can't go to a church because of it but he wanted to meet with the minister. And he said that he did really didn't want to meet with this guy. It was just something revulsive about it. Mm -hmm. But then he thought, but according to my theology, I am saying that this person, even though he is offended against children, somehow is still a child of God. And that ultimately there's some reconciliation that can take place here. So he goes to see him and he said, the guy turned out just to be a regular, you know, average looking farmer type person. And the, the man said that, as he got into the his habit, I guess, and he started uh, abusing children, he said that while he was actually doing all of that, he didn't feel very much. But he said that when he finally came to the came to the point of having to realize what he actually did, and to experience the forgiveness of God, that that was the most painful experience that he'd ever had in his life. So he really experienced that weeping and gnashing of teeth. He, he really, you know, it's not like um, having to come to terms and to see if you've done some incredible evil, exactly what that is and the harm you've exactly caused just to actually see that and begin to feel it. He said that was when he started, he felt really, he felt the pain of all of that. So he just shared that is the idea that nobody is going to sort of get away with anything, that ultimately we will have to feel and experience the evil that we have committed to the necessary depth 
uh, so that we will understand it and we will know that if we were the victim that um that the person who victimized us has experienced the depth of the suffering that they have caused and inflicted that's powerful david and one of the things i was thinking about as we as i went through your chapters on authenticity in the early church fathers and how rome kind of usurped what the amazing belief was or whenever we talk about hell or whether we talk about the bible and all the scriptures that kind of point to universal salvation i wanted to ask and maybe it's too soon in this conversation but mm -hmm. where are people caught up the most right there there's debates on i think it's a great question yeah that's where, a fantastic question yeah where are people caught up the most is is it the fact that i can't You're talking rich about theological yeah. people who are disagreeing with the book right yeah, yeah, I'm talking about, um, hey, wait, wait a minute, you're a universalist, everybody goes to heaven, it's all namsy-pamsy, right? Oh, you're this, and, you know, nobody believes in this in 15, 2,000 years, right? And so you can break those apart bit by bit and show these things. You even go into the difference between the sheep and the goats and, and the young goats, right? More like that prodigal son kind of feeling, and you have to mm -hmm. put a little bit more nuance. There's nuance to everything. Yeah, but where, because what, what we ultimately want to come out of this in what I'd love to be able to do, because I'm kind of a hopeful, and I'm a hopeful, you know, universalist, is I want to be able to um, find out how we can move this, right? Because the whole reason you're on this, we, we love people having, we're outside the status quo, whether it's brilliant neurosurgeons who are trying to say the way we've learned medicine, the way you've learned it, like not even 50% of it's valid, right? What we're saying is, guys, what we've been taught, what we've been experienced, even origin, people bagging on origin and claiming he was a heretic and even emasculated himself. They're using straw men and other ad hominem attacks as opposed to getting to the foundation of it. So for you, what's the biggest argument you think people need to overcome in their minds in embracing this? Because you've given so many strong components, right? Well, in the book, what I do is I say, what I want to start with, so let's, let's, first of all, let's talk about I don't want to really jump to the the hard hell question first. Okay. Uh, you know, if if that's what you want to do, right? Probably we're not going to have a good conversation. Um, because hell you're going to have like to the elephant in the room. It's best okay. to leave in the corner till you're all willing. <laughs> well, <laughs> but let me. Okay, you know. So first of all, I do want to say that um, before we get to the the hard hell questions, that. Um, I, I did not want to be, you know, Jesus talks about the, the, the Pharisees who lay heavy burdens on, on these heavy spiritual burdens on people. And so whatever I was going to do with Christianity, I did not want my message to be some kind of heavy spiritual burden that I was laying on, laying on people that I wanted to be actually good news. And I wanted to be real grace. And so I didn't want to be in the position of subtracting anything. I wanted full strength for grace. And so that, that meant that I wanted to affirm the Calvinist position that grace alone saves. I also wanted to affirm the Arminian position that grace goes to all. I wanted to affirm both of those, which meant right. I was going to need to rethink uh, let's, that we, you know, we really, I think we really want to affirm both of those, which makes it worthwhile to rethink our, what's going on in judgment. And also the idea of this, if we just think about our picture of God, is God truly a loving parent to all? If we can't affirm that about God, uh, I think we've got a problem. Uh, does God sincerely want to save all? 
Well, if we can't affirm that, I think we've got a problem too. If God really isn't loving and God really doesn't want to save all, okay, those, those are issues. So I really want to affirm those two things. I really want to affirm on the cross that, you know, in Calvinism, this idea of limited atonement that Jesus didn't really, the intention was never his cross, his death on the cross, never really to save, to be for everybody. Wow. Well, right. I wanted to sort of give full strength to the cross. I think that there was something that happened on the cross that was that uh, was huge and, and amazing and applies to everybody. So let, let me bring that out that perhaps on the cross um, that Jesus covers the sin of all of humanity. And there's some really powerful verses in the New Testament that have to do with this. And then let's think about the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a if if God in for if God is sovereign, that means that that the ultimate outcome of creation is something that is not outside of God's capacity. So, and if God is all knowing that how that will end up is something that is not unknown to God. So like Isaiah 46, 10, God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. There's also some passages that talk about God finally being all in all, which somebody like origin first Corinthians 15, 28 and the early church fathers picked up on some other really beautiful passages about the restoration of creation. So there's this, sort of beautiful possibility of a picture of God in the Christian um, in the Christian history, in the Christian tradition. The, the thing that makes it a problem, makes it all not work, is the idea of a hell of eternal separation. So now let's go there and let's look at some of these um, that some of these verses that have to do with eternal separation. Well, once you start looking, there's really not that many of them. I mean, that's kind of the billboard. Yeah. is that where are they? Well, there are not a lot of them. When you start looking at them, a lot of them have to do with a lot of things, but you start to realize that that this idea that there is this hell of eternal torment has sort of been sitting in the background, and we've been reading that into it as if it's clearly there in those verses. But when you start to look at them, they're just not there. It's not there as clearly as as we've been made to think it is. And if you'll just take, you know, not even that much time at all and take some time to even look into the original language even a little bit, you'll find out that there has been a long and rich conversation about these supposed verses that teach about this hell of eternal torment that kind of evaporate once you start just looking at some of the basic Greek terms and the historical terms. Like if you just, if somebody just investigates like what is Gehenna what is Sheol? What is Hades? What does the Greek term aeon mean? What is the what is the Greek uh, term for correction? Colossus means. Colossus, yeah. yeah. Once you start looking, it, it doesn't take very much to now with the with the resources that we have, anybody can get online and go to a interlinear Greek English New Testament and just look up any of these words. And pretty soon you'll find out that 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 just a lot of the things that we thought where we were told that in English translations made this all clear are not as clear as we, as we thought they were. You unequivocally in the book says, I believe grace saves all. Right. And you're an, you're a hopeful in the fact that you, you're placing your hope and faith in that idea. What was your last tether? What was the thing that kind of said, okay, I gotta, okay, I gotta jump was- on the ship. It's worth, it, it's worth jumping on. Yeah, the, the 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 problem that I had really, the main problem that I had all along was the problem of free will. Mm. Well, I had always thought that 
God is good, and therefore God must give us free will, and therefore we must somehow have the ability to finally say no, or our yes doesn't have meaning. And I guess I, it, you know, it kind of maybe comes into the from the background of growing up, you know, in the land of the free. You know, the you know, freedom is such this huge idea, and it just seemed to me that that yes, that God would give us grant us our freedom, but part of our freedom was the ability to finally, ultimately rebel in a final in a final sense. And so that's what kept me from coming to a, uh, a kind of a full blown idea of a you know, re universal restoration. Really, it was uh, reading Thomas Talbot's Inescapable Love of God. And David Bentley Hart's "That All Shall Be Saved," and really some essays leading up to "That All Shall Be Saved" by David Bentley Hart, that I came to realize that what I was working from, from a philosophical point of view, is something called libertarian free will, and the idea that in order for any action to be free, one had to have the had to have the possibility to do the to do otherwise. Mm. Okay, so that makes sense. What, I, what the problem is that 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 kind of falls apart once you get to the eschatological horizon. If you get to the point where you realize that that I'm I am God's child, God is my creator, and the one and I've been created to be in this loving relationship with God and others, and I realize that it is 100% in my emphasis, in my interest to enter fully into this relationship. And I realize that it's 100% to my detriment to walk away into annihilation or non-existence. Once I get to that point, I have, I have actually become free. I could theoretically walk the other direction. There's no fence. There's nothing preventing me from doing it, really. But I have actually no inclination to go that direction. And so the idea is that when we're when we're when we're acting against who we are, we are not free. We're actually a slave to sin. So once I begin to see that freedom really is the realization of my true nature oriented, you know, towards its transcendental end of the goodness of God, and that that is how that is how my full that is how I've been created to experience. Um, fulfillment and wholeness, then I realized that I actually didn't have a problem with free will anymore. And once that all evaporated, then I realized that, that God wasn't limiting free will, God was creating free will. And that there's only one direction that a free will goes when it becomes truly free, and that's home. So that once I got that part of it, then I realized there wasn't really any major barrier keeping me from affirming a full-blown Christian universalism, which also solved a lot of problems, finally solved some big theological problems for me about the goodness of God and how can I, how can I say that God is good in the face of a creation that has so much suffering and, and that could potentially even result in the final and total loss of one of God's own children. Theodicy, yeah. I mean, universalism is the best answer to theodicy right i mean because well, it's the most redeeming here's yes. the reality grace saves all works for everyone because here's the reality i want grace 100 for my life 
Every human being wants grace for themselves. We just all need to link up together and give it to each other because grace works better. It's redemptive. It produces more life. Biologically, it's sustainable. It just works better. And I, that's why, I, Dave, I'm going to ask you, David, do you think, oh, this is my assessment, grace is the operating system of the universe. Would you agree with that? Well, it's, oh, okay, so love. God is love and light and spirit. And so maybe what grace means is that, you know, while it, we're, what's weird is we're in this world that seems to run on um, I don't know, violence or aggression or intimidation. It's a fake dopamine. That's what it is. It, it's running on all of that. So it's hard to really think that love could actually be the most powerful force um, in the universe. And I, I happen to live in northern Arkansas and I'm close to the Buffalo National River. And there's some there's some really high, beautiful bluffs that have been carved by the Buffalo River over millions of years. But just slowly, the power of water to transform and to and to reveal something incredibly beautiful um, is just that power, that slow, that slow working power that just moves where it needs to move and gradually uh, uh, does the work that it needs to do. Just that idea of of that grace means that the love of God is just. It's it just continues to do its work powerfully, gently, but it's continuing to work and it's continuing to work. And finally, it just it will just win. It it can't fail to to finally win with everything and everyone. And that's when like the leaven, the idea of the leaven, the that works all the way through the 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 dough, the idea that the that the kingdom of God is this thing that's moving slowly but incredibly powerfully and will ultimately redeem all of creation that all of that started to make sense to me. So what did that in that moment? Cause for me, when I finally said, okay, everybody, what I, for me, I realized I was letting go of any judgment, like exception. It's always the exception rule. There's gotta be that one. Hitler is the exception. He's like, okay, we'll just keep him out. But in doing that, I'm keeping a part of myself out because there's always corners that I have to defend. And when mm-hmm. I grace saves all basically says there are no exceptions so that I can't find one for myself. I think that's why God wins with this theory is because you well, can't disqualify yourself. When you said it, is grace. Yeah, you said interesting phrase, God wins. And that was a kind of an idea that, that started b- making sense to me that there was a Do lot you not, of... God is not God unless God wins. Well, I think that there that that unless God actually succeeds in making a good creation, mm-hmm. then God becomes exactly. what what the Gnostics would call a demiurge, mm. he becomes a a failed creator who we look at and we say, well, you may have made this whole thing, but you don't appear to be good. So th- clearly, there's still something transcendent to you. So. That for, for me, in order for God to be God, God has to be transcendent in every imaginable way. And uh, as you know, as I started, to, it's natural to think when you start thinking about salvation, you're concerned about your own high. And then maybe you're concerned about the people that you love around you. And then maybe that starts, you know, broadening out to more and more people. But w- what I started to think about salvation is, is 
well, what does God want? What is it's God's creation? What is God wanting out of creation? And if what God wants out of creation is finally a creation in which all of his children and all of creation is finally reconciled back to God, then who's finally going to stop God from, from doing that? And anyway, and what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the God of pure love making a creation in which he calls children into existence out of nothing in order to share the goodness of this love? Uh, so when I started thinking that way, the idea that one could be excluded or even possibly excluded started troubling me. David Bentley Hart makes the argument in that all shall be saved, that the goodness of God suffers if there was even ever the possibility that one could be lost, so that, that there is this perfect love of God that calls us forth and that brings us finally into the consummation of creation. All of that, I, I tell people sometimes, this feels like the E equals MC squared of theology for me. It, it makes everything work together and fit together in a, very, in a very powerful way. In a way, it was kind of like the reverse of the matrix. Because in the matrix, Neo takes the red pill and he wakes up to this horrible reality. Well, this was like if you took the red pill and you woke up to like the most beautiful imaginable picture. It's like the reverse almost. It was the most beautiful, stunning picture that, and you could not believe how beautiful uh, it really is and that this is the, like the ultimate destiny of all creation. It's a beautiful matrix. <laughs> it, that image allows you to see the kingdom of God. Because I believe when we operate in this idea of grace is universal, it's, it covers everyone. My neighbor, the person I hate, myself, it allows me to calm my nervous system and go, okay, yeah. let's tap into creativity. What, what would God's kingdom actually look like here and now, not later when we die, but here and now, it transforms everything. And so I think like for somebody like you, what my book, what my book does is it, it's not really saying something new to you, but what it is, is it's, 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 it's bringing a sort of a clarity of expression mm -hmm. that puts together things that you're thinking in a very powerful way. And, and so I'm not really telling you something that you don't know, but I'm putting it in a form that uh, I guess that puts it together in a way that's very satisfying and is, and is possible, it's exciting then because it puts it in a form that's possible to share with others. Yeah. Well, I think going back to my original point, I think it's probably the most elegant work I've ever read regarding this subject. It is the tip of the spear for me because if I were to recommend it to anybody, best book I read last year, hands down best book. I remember reading or listening to it on audiobook and recognizing, okay, I knew this moment would come that someone would put it together in a way that resonated with me. Cause I, Rich and I are very deeply theological people. It's the mm -hmm. pursuit of God. What does God look like? That's theology. And we've been in this conversation for 15 years and you put together an image of God that was so full of grace. There was no argument in my heart against it. It was so perfect. I told him, I said, I agree with 99.9% .9 of the things you talked about. And it was weird because it was like, oh, okay, it it is there. Like you yeah, published it. It was there. It was on the table now. And it was now part of our lexicon to work with 
and say, this is a new conversation because I grew up an Arminian, became mm -hmm. a Calvinist in college, and then went through a really heavy deconstruction period. But I knew deconstruction was not about just leaving everything behind. I needed to rebuild something. So I rebuilt my entire life. But the concept of grace is, is paramount. It's the, is it the operating system of the universe? And you, I believe, made an argument that, yes, it is. It's, well, what I'm, it's how it works. Yeah, and the fun thing about this is what I'm doing is I'm taking the most powerful part of the Arminian point of view. Yes. It's just that God sincerely, God, the Arminian, in the Arminian view, God sincerely wants to save all. And God gives grace to all. Uh, in the Calvinist view, then, uh, the grace that God gives never fails to save the one that God gives it to. So grace saves alone. Yes. So really what I'm putting together are parts of the Christian tradition. I think they got separated from each other historically uh, because in the, in the Middle Ages, the doctrine of eternal separation sort of got baked into the cake of Western Christendom, and it forced a bifurcation of our understanding of grace. So I think all I'm really doing is putting grace, putting a vision of grace back together that got separated. But this picture of grace is not new to Christianity. We can see it beautifully expressed in the early in the early centuries of it. David, do you think somebody can move from annihilationism to universalism? I think that that was one thing. It was ironically, it was an argument from eternal conscious torment that helped me to do this. And here's the way this happened. When I'd, I had done a doctor of ministry paper back in 1995 on the three different views of hell. And so at the time I looked at um, eternal conscious torment, annihilationism, and universal restoration. At the time, there weren't as many good arguments for universal restoration as there are now. And so I wasn't persuaded. And so I, I ultimately, back in 95, settled on annihilationism as that finally the ultimate end of the wicked would be that they would just cease to exist because it seemed like eternal conscious torment was just problematic on lots of different levels. But I was reading a guy who was arguing for eternal conscious torment. And he said, if you look at uh, Luke, the 15th chapter, that all of the things there that are, that are said to be destroyed, mm -hmm. the, uh, the sheep and the coin and the sun, that there's a Greek word there, apolumai. And that, so all of those, the sheep is said to be destroyed, but it really is still ex in existence. It's just lost. The coin is destroyed, but it's, it's there somewhere. We just can't find it. And the, the son is in a state of apolumi. He's lost and away from home. The father even describes him as being dead. So I began to see that one could be in the, even in a state of death, lostness. Um, well, what, what the guy, the eternal conscious torment guy was arguing is that therefore something, the eternal conscious torment makes sense because something could be eternally lost. It would still be there, um, but it could be eternally there just in a state of separation from God. So then I started to think if something could be in the state of lostness, and separation from God, but the, it could also be restored. Yes. So there could be a restoration on the other side of annihilation yes. or apolumai. So, uh, and you make the argument in your book that justice doesn't destroy, it restores, right? But it does 
when that part about um, that the devil must come out every hair and feather and that there is a fire, there is a, there is a judgment that finally everything, as George MacDonald would put it, everything that is not of love's kind must be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the destruction that but necessarily, the that's yeah. part. Of, so in a way, I could say, I do believe that there is an annihilation, but that the annihilation annihilates finally everything that is not of love's kind, but that ultimately it works towards a, uh, it works towards a restoration. And here's the thing. So I'm going to dive deep into a subject now, because I think this is a good turning point. Um, I want to go back to your friend who had the vision or the meeting with his friend. What mm -hmm. was his name? Oh, well, this, it, it was a meeting. It wasn't a friend. Are you talking about the, the he had to meet the man who was the Methodist minister? Yeah, Heath Bradley. Okay, Heath Bradley. In Heath Bradley's story and wrestling with that gentleman's story was this idea of, I couldn't believe God would love me. Because I think every our own wrestling of our salvation is yeah, always it wasn't he, yeah, it was it was it wasn't Heath that couldn't believe that God loved him. It was exactly it was sorry, it was the other gentleman. It was the other and I think the, the other gentleman represents the worst of who we could think we could be. Yeah. That it, we're always trying to find the exception to God's love. So we can exclude ourselves because we're judging ourselves so harshly. And I think that's the mental health crisis we're experiencing as a humanity right now. Because I want to go back to, I grew up in the probably one of the first mega churches in California. It was Los Gatos Christian, and we we're seventy five hundred people. We were the we were the mega church model for everybody, mm -hmm. and um, we grew up with a very strong definition of discipleship and love. But hell existed, and I remember. I was more, I became a Christian because I wanted to avoid hell. I wrestled with that concept throughout my entire life, even through mm -hmm. young adulthood of, am I saying the words right in right. the salvationist prayer? And it was <laughs> always a fear of hell. And I now realize I was theologically traumatized. And I think there is a massive amount of people in the world who have been theologically traumatized by hell. Yeah, there is. And we uh, better damn sure make sure it actually exists. Mm. That's an important thing because this is our children that we're dealing with. Right. Yeah, there's this idea of secure attachment. How can I be right. securely attached to a parent that I can't trust? And then I think that the idea now that there's a complex PTSD. Yes. Where if you just suggest to somebody enough times that, hey, honey, um, there's a God who may torture you forever if you don't get it right. Um, exactly. That, that fires up your whole system. And it, can, it also then can make you, um, you know, especially if you're somebody that struggles with something, it can, it, it, it can finally just get you to the point where you just give up and you just throw in the towel. It's like, well, there's no way I'm going to ever, ever be able to please this God. I talked to one guy he, who had struggled with alcoholism, and he said, just the idea that God was going to throw me into hell for being an alcoholic was all I needed to think in order to take the next drink. You know, oh. it, he had this sort of morbid kind of, of uh, this, this, um, this idea that he was finally just going to, there wasn't anything he could do. He couldn't make it. God would never accept him. And yep. that just drove him further and further 
yep. down into despair. Yeah. And, and yeah, so I think you're right that that if you teach people this view of God, it leads to a lot of spiritual trauma. Well, I think in 2010, which is when Rich and I met, 2009 or 10, somewhere around there, oh deconstruction God. was a huge part of the emerging conversation. And that's what really kind of bonded us together because I was really wrestling with how do you reconcile a God who could send someone eternally? Most estimations, if it's just Christians, 90% of humanity ever existed is gone to, it's like that's 70 billion people, I think, have gone, will go to hell under that construct. That doesn't make sense. It does not reconcile with love. Ever. Well, agreed. Ever. And and that's hard because we we have these complex theological conversations in history. Well, how can you, was Luther just wrong? No, he just didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think we are now emerging from this period. You published the book when? 2021? 2020. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And I read it 2021. And this is a new conversation. We are in a period where people are like the fastest growing are the nuns, the people who don't want anything to church, but they, cause they need a new story about God. One that is built on love and grace saves all is the only way you can get there. It's the only yeah. way we've had all the theological conversations in Armenium and Calvin they've been fighting each other forever. And there's no win in that fight ever. It's not a win-win situation. Grace saves all is the only win-win there is. And that's what I think you beautifully made the argument of. Well, thank you. Um, that was just, uh, I get a lot of emails from people. And uh, there was one, uh, one person who emailed me and then we ended up having a conversation. And just to say, I think this story kind of tells a trajectory that we're on. He said that he had grown up with the uh, eternal conscious torment idea mm -hmm. and that he had an experience and kind of a revelation that that just didn't work anymore. And so he, he got thrown into the world of deconstruction. Okay. So then he was, uh, he was looking around he said, you know, but I'm working full time. And so I'm just, I'm going through my life, but I'm trying to listen to podcasts and different things to try to get some, you know, different ideas about things. And he said, so, I started thinking about this idea of um, uh, conditional, uh, maybe conditional immortality or annihilation. So as I said, I was looking at looking at podcasts that have to do with that. Well, as I looked into the annihilation podcast, every now and then uh, a podcast or an interview about universal restoration or universal, reconcili universal reconciliation would come up. He said, but I didn't want to look at that. I didn't want to look at those. I was just wanting to see if I could get to annihilationism. So he started really getting to, he started really getting all the arguments for annihilationism. And then he said there was a interview with uh, Peter Hyatt, a YouTube interview with Peter Hyatt on how a conditionalist became a universalist. And so he finally said, okay, well, I guess I, I've looked into that. I'll look into this. And once he started looking into that view, he realized uh, over a period of time that it was actually, it actually had a superior way of handling things than the annihilationist position did. So I think what's happening right now is there's just a lot of people that are out there that are looking for alternatives. 
Yes. And they're seeing they're seeing the arguments for annihilationism. They're going to see the arguments for universal restoration or universal salvation. And mm -hmm. I'm glad that you think that my book is a helpful contribution to this. But now there, there are lots of resources out there for anybody that would want to look into um, into the, the argument for Christian universalism. And it's such a powerful argument once you give yourself the time to look at it. So I'm pretty confident that over the coming years that the debate is increasingly going to be between the annihilationism point of view or, or, or some kind of hopeful universalism and, and like a confident universalism that I'm talking about. And I'm, I'm thinking that we're going to start leaving the eternal conscious viewpoint idea in the mirror. We're going to leave that in the rear view yeah. mirror. Yeah. Uh, and that it's, it's, that's really, that viewpoint is really going to be struggling. I mean, like it's, I can see how there's been a lot of people that have moved away from it. I can't believe in the last 20 years, how many evangelicals have moved from yeah. eternal conscious torment to annihilationism, which was for, which would have been a forbidden move 20 years and ago. And annihilationism is the corner case of free will, right? Well, it's just the idea that eternal conscious torment is 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 so 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 troubling that what about if the ultimate end is that people by their own choices finally degrade themselves to the point that there's nothing left for them to exist? That way it's not really God's fault because right. God is just giving them free will. And each time that they choose against God, the part of them that's less to choose that's left to choose denigrates a little bit more until finally there's nothing left of them. And, and uh, N.T. Wright, I think, expresses that. Um, it, he doesn't really talk about hell in, in the depth of ECT, but it seems to me like when you lose your humanity to that level. But going back to your point, I think God truly wins, though, when he restores and he prunes and he brings back, as opposed to almost like, hey, he gives up on these people who just want to burn the world and we're just going to burn them too, right? That that's actually not in his nature. His nature is to to restore and to reconcile. And the reason why I asked you about um, annihilation earlier, um, David, is that you know Pope Francis actually was hinting at annihilationism back in 2018. Supposedly, he had a person, a journalist, he chatted with who kind of spouted it out. And there was a lot of you know him in and a han. I think people tried to pull it back, but I truly believe that Francis is an annihilationist. So guess what, boys and girls, let's get on the bandwagon to try to help show, show them the light and what a um, an angle for, for strength and power, if that could ever happen. He'd probably get excommunicated because there's too much, uh, you know, at stake in the Catholic church. But I mean, that was, that was, that was important for me to hear that because that it does show that there's stuff going on. I think that Francis even made some comments that led people to think that he might be affirming a kind of universalism not just an annihilationism. Uh, and then there's a big debate about that because it, it might've just been an offhand comment that he was making to a reporter, yes, uh, an atheist reporter, in which it seemed like he was, you know, hinting that there would be some kind of final, you know, restoration or, or reconciliation. It seems like there's an interview too with a, there's this little child that goes up to Pope Francis and he asks him a question about his father who had died. And he gives him a very, you know, very grace-filled answer. Um, but I think that there, it, it's we're in an interesting time right now because I think there's there's a lot of people who are kind of wanting to affirm a, 
a, a hopeful universalism like in Catholicism, Hans, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar's Dare We Hope That All Saved affirms a very, very hopeful universalism. And people are either wanting to affirm that or an outright universalism. But then on the other hand, that's starting to scare people who feel like, oh, oh, we need to circle the wagons and it's time to defend. It's time to really, this is the time to take the last stand for tradition, mm-hmm. at least as they understand it. So uh, I, I think I think things are going to, I think that this debate is, we're at the, we're not, we're at the beginning of, I think, a big debate, a big coming debate about uh annihilationism, hopeful universalism, confident universalism. I think a lot of people are going to be working them, working through all of these issues in the near future. We need to have that conversation where we're having an honest, open conversation, because I think this is the, the vein that's been missing that is going to offer a lot of life to the conversation. But people yeah. need the permission to still disagree, but still peer into that conversation and say, oh, I, that's why people need the freedom to have what you had. Cause there was a point where you didn't believe this. And then there was a point you did. And there's right. a lot of people that are still on that other side of the bridge. That's okay. Well, you just yeah. need permission in the space and the dialogue to help them get there. That's why I wanted to invite you on because we need more of these dialogues in a big way because they're fresh, they're life giving they help see they help people see that God is more graceful than we've been giving him credit. Yeah. And if 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 Christian community could return to oh kind of goodness. how it was in the early centuries and say, we are big enough to have this conversation again. We can we can have this conversation, we can talk about these things, and we don't have to excommunicate each other. Mm-hmm. And we can be in community and we can have communion with each other. Mm-hmm. Um so. I think just making room, uh, making room for this is 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 going to start happening. There's some institutional openness that needs to take place, um, but I think that the more people that, the more people that say, you know what, I, this is a view of God that works for me. I, I believe that God will ultimately save all. And the more of us that walk into churches and say, you know, I'd love to go to church somewhere that would receive me. Would you be willing to receive me in your congregation? The more people that are able to say like, oh yeah, Christian universalism. Where's the couple of people in our church that believe that? We have some fun conversations about that. The more that that happens, um, I think more that people won't feel like right now, people are, I think, just scared to even talk about it. They're scared to even have the conversation. So if my book can just help people to feel like this is a legitimate conversation to be involved in, that would be the conversation as far as I'm concerned. Thank you.